Yeah, I want to teach you how to write for radio. I don't get it, though. <laughs> it shows. I love you. Hello. Hello, everyone. Uh, thanks for listening to I Don't Get It. This podcast is about performance in Edmonton. And we are a proud member. <laughs> I want to say affiliate member every time. And we are a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Powered, powered by, by ATB. Um, I'm Fonda. And I'm Andrew. And Fonda, what did you see this week? We saw so many things, so many things with birch trees and projections. It was uh, it was actually quite interesting to see a couple of um, very different productions that used almost the exact same um, technical scenic um, technique <laughs> to to animate the stage. Uh, yeah. Oh, so what was that technique? Uh, birch trees, but uh, how did they build them up? Well, birch trees essentially um, were a large part of the structure of the set, but they were also used as a backdrop for projection. So they really animated the feeling of, you know, being in a forest um, for both of these very unique shows, one of which was Edmonton Opera's Hansel and Gretel, and the other was Lake of the Strangers, a uh, production by Nehawin and written by Hunter Cardinal and Jackie, Jacqueline Cardinal. Yeah. Uh, so what's up first? Well, first, we're going to go to uh, our first review is uh, of Edmonton Opera this year, uh, which is uh, with our resident opera guide, Colleen Fian. Hello, Colleen. Hi, Fonda. How are you today? Very good. And what did we just do? We just went to see uh, Edmonton Opera's production of, of Engelbert Humperdinck's Hansel and Gretel. Oh, like, is it like, you know, the fairy tale? I believe it's a Grimm's fairy tale, Hansel it, and Gretel? It is. It's a Grimm's fairy tale. And it was uh, it was written by Engelbert Humperdinck in the 1890s. And his wife actually wrote the libretto based on the fairy tale. Oh, so, well, I've heard of, I've heard the name Engelbert Humperdinck before. Um, mostly probably used in humor. <laughs> <laughs> um, so tell me a little bit about, um, you know, him and uh, this, uh, you know, I guess the era that this play was written in. Yeah, so he didn't, uh, this is sort of his most notable piece. Um, he also did other uh, composition for other sorts of things. I think this, this might be the only opera that he actually wrote. Um, and he was a contemporary of Wagner's and they actually were quite close. He actually um, was uh, Wagner's son Siegfried's music teacher. But oh. uh, yeah, so they, so they, I'm sure, would be discussing a lot of the same um, theories and, and politics of opera and those sorts of things. Um, and at this time in Germany in the, the late 1800s, um, Germany was actually going through a really prosperous phase. So they were feeling good about themselves. They had some really good trade policies happening with the other countries around them. So there was actually a thriving uh, middle class, which was sort of upsetting the norm. But um, so that's sort of the political environment that this comes out of. And you'll note at one point in the opera, the father um, in a moment of joy sort of says, we're celebrating our independence as of like 1843 or something like that. So yeah, he actually mentions the year and it's like, okay, yeah. I know, I know exactly what time it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So that's sort of neat, like in a, in a highly unpolitical um, story to have that one little piece of Mm -hmm. of um, 
of de- detail. So mm-hmm. anyway. Well, and do you think that it was that unpolitical? Maybe let's go through what the story of Hansel and Gretel is, at least in this opera, because um, I, I'm pretty sure it's fairly similar to the version that we've all heard as children. Um, you know, Hansel and Gretel are hungry. They go into the woods. Um, they meet a witch and she's bad. <laughs> oh, and there's the gingerbread house. And the gingerbread house, right? Of course, the iconic gingerbread house that they start eating. Yeah. Um, in any case, so what? Um, so what about this story do you think is a little bit reflective of what the children are supposed to be learning, say? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it was very, because you have the opening scene and Gretel is lecturing Hansel on being a good little boy and not being bad or a brat and things like that and being grateful. There's this big emphasis on prayer like being a good little kid and praying to god and mm-hmm. and um yeah and being patient and and grateful and so and oh and the you know like the the gingerbread house like stop eating my gingerbread house mm-hmm. so there is sort of this theme that the kids should be well-behaved little children and not gluttons <laughs> and not gluttons <laughs> yeah and it's interesting that the the little boy child Hansel ends up being the bad one and the the the, the sister is Gretel is the good one so you've sort of got this um a weird archetype of the good daughter and the the mischievous son which you know in 2019 gender politics mm-hmm. it's sort of interesting that these two children are so gendered yeah, it's very gendered. Though they were played by two um, female performers. Um, but uh, yeah, um, Hansel, he has those, these lines where he's like, I'm a boy. I'll protect you. I fear nothing. And, yeah. you know, and Gretel's just like, um, well, how about we just... She's very demure, yeah. um, you know. And also the the roles of the mother and father are also very uh, stereotypical, stereotypical, um, maybe for the time. Um, you know, the father talks about being a drunken sot and the yeah. mom is just a nag, yeah. uh, you know, and she's just like really, really... Um, and you know, overall, there's sort of this like concern about their 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 poverty, they're hungry, um, and so hence Hansel and Gretel are sent out to to find food in the forest. And this is, I felt, where the show really started to come alive was when we actually went into the forest. Um, maybe you can talk a little bit about um, you know how the music is really used in this show a little bit differently than in a lot of the other operas that we've seen, at least the ones that we've discussed so far. Yeah. So this, again, so this is written in Germany in the late 1800s, um, at, again, at the same time as Wagner was writing a lot of his famous operas. And something you'll see that's very similar uh, in style for both of those composers is that the music is not, it's not a bel canto. This is not a marriage of Figaro where it's, we're, we're, we're waiting for, the, for the, the virtuosic singer to stand and deliver an amazing aria, and then we talk a little bit, and then we go back to an aria. Like, that's not what this is like. We were talking about it before, and it's almost more like... Like the um, the what you said it earlier the it's almost like a score to a movie. Yeah, it seems it lends a lot more to the scenery almost and like mm. the emotion that you're supposed to feel. I you know and which is maybe why we both felt a little bit weird about the witch's role at the end. For me, when I watch an opera, so often I'm expecting like that big stand and sing climax at the end. You know that you're familiar with. Yeah, that you you know you're familiar with the sound of it and everything and this I did not get at at all with this opera Um, the music in Hansel and Gretel was completely new to me um, though I found uh, it really did animate the forest very well they had the sounds of you know like the little lightning bugs and of the wind and things that things that they were hearing in the forest which was also really well played out um, by the opera's production team um, with use of the set and projections Mm -hmm. Um, the projections were animated so you could see forest creatures and things like that 
Um, and the uh, the animation and costuming, I'll point out, of the Sandman in particular was really beautiful. Oh, the Sandman was over the top. That was probably my favorite piece in the in the opera. And then they have all these little angels that sort of come out from below the Sandman and encircle the children. Like that was probably the best. That was part of my favorite part of the opera. Yeah, and the Sandman sings this beautiful lullaby to mm-hmm. lull Hansel and Gretel to sleep, and then so and they're just sort of like punctuated by this team of angels, which are played by a chorus of children. I think it's Cantillon choirs in Edmonton. They were so adorable with these little halos, oh, and so yeah, and just like this really, really beautiful, lovely scene to end the first act. Yeah, and actually, and it's sort of interesting because the music isn't sort of uh, melodic in a way that we're used to with traditional opera, um, but again, it's sort of ebbs and flows and creates feeling and 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 things um and and it can be uh danger or happy times or childish or whatever it is and then you get these little gems dropped through the opera of what i believe are german sort of folk music where they're sort of tidy little nursery rhyme songs and they're they're quite touching and they're quite beautiful Mm -hmm. but they're just little droplets of that throughout throughout the opera and so yeah and one of these moments is just this beautiful little prayer that they're singing before they go to sleep and yeah, there's sort of like either lullaby or parts that seem like they're kind of very mo- mother goose-ish, you know, just yeah. very short little verses um, of poetry. But what I noticed about the music is that it didn't it didn't seem to refrain very much. Um, there there weren't other than maybe the little dance song that Hansel and Gretel sing at the very beginning. I didn't notice the music kind of like harking back to what the, had happened earlier. Mm-hmm. It was a very almost like a linear score in that way. So it's mm-hmm. taking you through the forest and, and showing you exactly sort of what's in front of you the entire time. Right, and as you pointed out, they start off in the house in, the, in their home, the the, uh, the family, and they never actually return to it. Like the, the children are reunited with the parents right after the witch thing goes down, <laughs> and they're still in the woods. Like it's not, yeah. So it, it, they they found the parents, but mm-hmm. they never actually returned home, which is sort of interesting. Yeah, and technically that was like sort of animated by all of this projection and stuff. There, yes, the, the let's ho- talk about the projections. <laughs> the home that they begin in is this very drab gray. They're all wearing gray. Um, everything looks, you know, kind of like definitely not the usual lush, you know, um, uh, you know fantastic sets and things like that that you normally see um, with the opera at the Jube, you know, when it's of that scale. Um, And so, but then as they start moving into the woods, there's color, like color starts coming into their costumes, the light starts to animate the this essentially a set of birch trees that are hanging from the flies. I'd say there were probably at least 60 or so trees that oh, were, yeah. yeah, and so it really added um, like a depth and kind of like a, like a 3D feeling to the projections that were happening onto the trees, but also a little sense of mystery because the if they're using the trees as a screen, it's all broken up. It's similar to what we saw in Orfei at the BAM Center. Mm-hmm. I know the projection felt very familiar and they they used it to um I, I, I like I thought it was a good use of it I liked I liked the projection on the birch trees I mean when you're looking when you're thinking of a fairy tale and and what you would think that that looks like all you know you're sort of expecting a mother goose kind of over the top big trees and things like that but so it was they were it was sort of a stark force but I think it worked mm-hmm. um, but I we've talked about this more and I don't know that I loved the gingerbread house because it's such an <laughs> iconic thing mm-hmm. in in a in this story and mm-hmm. so and they used I believe the same house that the kids started off in and they sort of flipped it around yeah the same sort of facade set piece yeah yeah and then using the projector they made 
the the gingerbread house and at some points it danced around which was neat we've fun disagrees with me yeah there were, I, the, there were the little candy canes that were animated you know they sort of spun so they made the house look very magical mm-hmm. yeah. i know but i kind of i because for all the setup that you've got the forest and they've got all these levels in the tree they've got a, like a level up top so there's all that going on and the sandman was just so magical mm-hmm. and then you got to the witch and like the the performer did a great job um, and the costume was fun and the house was kind of fun but I just it wasn't as titillatingly magical as the Sandman was for me so I was like oh okay mm-hmm. yeah the Sandman was pretty magical I think that that vision of um, you know the this incredible green skirted costume that looks like a you know a big forest nymph with like in a like a ball gown but also is sort of streaming this it's supposed to be sand but it looks like lightning bugs or whatever and it's just like coming out of the bottom of the costume through this projection the animated projection um yeah it was very stunning to look at and then by the time you got to the witch the witch comes out and it all seemed to turn a little lo-fi yeah <laughs> yes i mean especially the witch the witch herself played I'm, i would add like very funnily by robert clark um mm. it, it is definitely a comedic role really hammed it up in terms of how just kind of like nasty and weird she is <laughs> yeah. um, um, there's a you know there's some funny songs and some funny things and I will note we were watching this show in the preview version with 2,000 Edmonton young Edmonton students I think they were maybe elementary and junior high age <laughs> um, and oh my god they th- they thought this witch was hilarious <laughs> <laughs> well she has she says oh, sorry the witch was played by a man but the witch says the word booby when referring to Hansel a bunch of times yeah. like as in like oh you little booby but the kids just <laughs> lost it every time <laughs> every time she said booby there was little titters in the audience like oh it's so funny she's saying booby uh, I know when I great. show up to the like the matinee with all the kids like I'm in a dress and heels <laughs> and like my evening coat and yeah, yeah and fun is like uh it's the media preview don't don't dress up <laughs> oh and I tried to get snacks and a glass of wine at the, and that was not happening no it was a little it's the 11 a.m. start time I only wanted first... wine for the second act not the first one <laughs> I waited till afternoon I didn't get any so it was all good <laughs> well well, um, because we've talked a lot about the set and everything, um, do you want to point out that the scenic designer was Camellia Koo and the lighting and projections were designed by Barry Steele. Um, and so, you know, great job done with those, I think. Actually, this oh, yeah. is pro- now the second production I've seen this week that has a set of birch trees using projection in it. And we'll talk about that other one, though. Yeah. After after this, <laughs> um, in any case, um, is there anything that you wanted to add about the performances or the show itself? Maybe um, I, I wanted to touch a little bit on the translation, and particularly, um, you know, the booby part. <laughs> but um, how uh, how common is it to hear this opera sung in English? So the opera was originally written in German and performed in Germany, Munich specifically. That's where it premiered. And then when it started to be performed in London and uh, later on in the U.S., um, they actually very early on translated it into an English version and um, I forget who wrote the first version but the um, but the version that we saw today and the version that was actually um, uh, the Met um, hired someone to actually just do that for them and that was David Putney so that's sort of the, um, the I think the famous translation that we use now mm-hmm. and yeah and the and I have to say Hansel and Gretel both did a great job as we said before Gretel is pay, played sorry Hansel is played by a woman as is Gretel um, uh, Andrea Hill and, and Lita Zwizarek. 
Shokarik, maybe. I don't know. Sorry, Lita. We'll please correct us. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, they both did a fantastic job. I thought the costumes actually really, like, if you just kind of let your mind go with it, they did look like children, mm-hmm. uh, these two adult women, and they did a great job at being the physicality of that, I thought. Mm-hmm. Their voices are great, but sort of as we were saying before, in an opera like this, it's not really about the virtuosic voices. It's more sort of about the whole story and the whole picture. Mm-hmm. And um, so the fact that I didn't, and we sort of were talking about it at the half at uh, at intermission, and I didn't even really notice the voices. Like it was, you got into the story and. <clears throat> And because we were watching the dress rehearsal, there was one moment where the kids were lying on the, sorry, sorry, Hansel and Gretel were lying on the stage, not the children from the not audience, the they were very well behaved. No, they were Hansel and Gretel are lying on the stage and they're talking about something and then the, the um, conductor had to stop and restart a, a passage. Mm-hmm. And it was jarring because I was so in the story. Mm-hmm, and it was like, mm-hmm. oh, right. And it just sort of, and it was the dress rehearsal, so they're allowed to do that. But um, it just, it broke the magic for just a second like that. And mm-hmm. I think the fact that it was like, oh, right, this is a technical feat that yeah. they're doing. Like, mm-hmm. so they were, the kids were, sorry, Hansel and Gretel were, I thought, really well done. All right. We had a tiny recorder mishap there in the very last minute. So you didn't get to hear Colleen and I lamenting about how all the kids had brought their lunch to this uh, preview performance and how we almost stole some of them because we were so hungry. Uh, lesson learned, eat, eat brunch before uh, the opera media call. <laughs> I would love to bring my own food to the opera. <laughs> I think that would uh, improve my opera experience like tenfold if I could just have like a tasty sandwich <laughs> sitting there <laughs> watching. I don't know. A nice sandwich at an intermission. That's uh, I, I think that's a good that's a good. That's a good idea for a long haul show. In any case, um, many thanks to Colleen Fian for coming uh, to chat about Hansel and Gretel with us. And you can catch that on February 5th and 8th, still running at the Jubilee Auditorium. Um, also this week, we caught up with another very special guest to talk about her unique experience um, of Nehawin's Lake of the Strangers, which wrapped up at the ATB Arts Barns. But first, here's an ad. If you're an artist, check out ATB's Branch for Arts and Culture, a bank, music venue, and creative space all in one. So whether you're a budding musician wanting advice on how to save for a new instrument, or an artist looking for a bank that understands how your business works, ATB can help. For more information on the Branch for Arts and Culture, head to atb.com slash thebranch. Hi everyone, I'm here with a very special guest um, who I will I will allow her to introduce herself. How about, who are you? And tell us a little bit about what you do. Hi, my name is Nisha. I'm currently the festival producer at the Edmonton Poetry Festival. But in my spare time, I like to say that I'm a spoken word poet here in Edmonton. You like to say, you mean you are one and you perform regularly and we can catch you doing all these things. Um, well, so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about a show that um, we both saw this week. We saw it, we didn't see it together, but I know that um, you did something pretty special after you saw this show. So um, let's talk a little bit about Lake of the Strangers. Can you, um, real quick, can you give us a bit of a synopsis about what, what this show is, what it's about? Yeah, so in the show, uh, there's a young boy who decides to go on an overnight fishing trip kind of on his own, and he drags his brother along with him. Um, and during this this adventure that they go on, uh, a few things happen, including um, like the sighting of a bear, and then they're running from the bear, and it all happens uh, right at the edge of a lake. And so that's kind of the premise of the show, and it just talks about kind of what happens to these two boys overnight as they undergo this experience. 
Yeah, so it's a it's a new production by Nahea Wynn, um, co-written by siblings Hunter Cardinal and Jacqueline Cardinal, um, and the performer in the piece is Hunter Cardinal. So he's um, he's playing both himself and his younger brother, and all the other characters they sort of run into through through most of it. Um, and because the the place takes place by this lake, the setup is really unique for a live show. Um, do you want to describe a little bit about what you really see when you're watching the play? Yeah. So first of all, there's a splash zone when you come to the theater, uh, which includes all the first row seats on all three sides that border this stage. And then the stage itself, because of the splash zone, is kind of like an ankle deep pool. Uh, And it kind of looks like the edge of a lake would look. And like a lot of the play takes place um, in the water, not really like outside of it or around it, but literally in the water. And you can just watch, um, you know, Hunter as the main actor get progressively more soaked as the play goes on. <laughs> yeah, he gets completely soaked. And I did, did you see it in the splash zone? I did not sit in the splash zone. <laughs> Um, yeah, so he's so the 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 pool that he's in is sort of I'd say it's maybe two or three inches deep. Um, it's full of water. There's a couple of tree stumps, sort of, so it gives him a little a few levels, and it's about ten by ten feet. So he's really got this one square of playing space. What I thought was really interesting about um, the the technical visuals in the show is that the water allowed the play of light to do a lot of really interesting things. So when he's running around in the water, it looks really frenetic and kind of all over the place, but then there's also very still moments where the reflections of the lights and the reflections of these birch trees in the background, which also act as a sort of a projection screen, um, they also reflect through. So, you know, you get those sort of like nice feelings of like calm water and that beautiful starry night reflection sometimes. Um, Was there anything else visually about the show that caught your eye? Yeah, I think just the simplicity of the set design was incredibly appealing to me, you know, and the costuming, like Hunter himself is just dressed in a t-shirt and jeans for most of the play, Um, if not all of the play. Sometimes he has a backpack. And then the set itself, because it's really focused on that pool of water, allows the the light and the screen again to really play off of it. And the narrative builds around those uh, those two things. And so I really enjoyed kind of the aesthetics of the play. I thought it was like very interesting and very alluring. Mm-hmm. And now let's talk a little bit more about the narrative and the themes. So we are saying that, yes, it uh, it's, it is about a, uh, uh, two brothers going through this sort of almost a mythical journey, um, you know, running into bears and all sorts of things in the forest, <laughs> stuff like that. Um, what were sort of some of the, the key points in the story that stuck out to you, um, in particular for when you did your, your, your piece that you performed after it? Yeah, so I wrote a poem in response to uh, Lake of the Strangers. Uh, that I actually performed for Hunter and his father and the rest of the audience who came to the show that day. And the things that really struck out to me were just the intensity of the bond between the two brothers and the way that especially like young kids um, and young men express love and affection, mm. which is often through the guise of, you know, playfulness or uh, making fun of each other and stuff like that. And as someone who has a lot of si- siblings and cousins, like that was very familiar to me. So to see love displayed in that way was uh, incredibly moving to me. And then, of course, there's other things that go on in the play that 
really test the strength of that love and bring it to the forefront of the entire play. So there's really no way you can kind of deny the bond that these two brothers share as well as the depiction of that bond and how it changes. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting that you mentioned uh, Hunter's father, Lewis Cardinal, because he does appear in the play very briefly at the very beginning and the end, too. Yeah, so Lewis Cardinal, of course, is uh, very well known in the city, and he appears just at the beginning um, to kind of... It almost It's almost like he gives that, that wise elder presence, you know, and sets the stage for some of the seriousness that occurs at the end of the play, but not necessarily the middle of the play. Like the middle of the play is very youthful and very bright um, and like very playful as well to kind of capture that you know, the the essence of being a child on an adventure. Um, but with Lewis coming back at the end, especially, it kind of cements the weird, like, mythical elements of the pit play and uh, really puts it into, into perspective of, oh, like, this is a young boy's story, but it definitely has implications for people of all ages. Mm-hmm. And what I really appreciated about this production was that it, it, it very much gave you the experience of an oral storytelling tradition. Not only are we hearing Hunter tell us a story um, or this character tell us a story, uh, we're hearing sort of um, the build of that story about um, sort of kind of like origin myths, too, about, you know, how Ursa Major is in the sky and things like that. Um, so so uh, what were um, what did you feel about some of the really Cree uh, language elements that showed up in the show? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think especially as someone who doesn't speak Cree, there was no instance where it felt like I was outside of the narrative, that I wasn't being let in um, in in retrospect, you know, thinking back, like it might have alienated some people. But for me, it was just like, oh, like I am bearing witness to something that is incredibly personal uh, to Indigenous people, which is the art of storytelling and the way that it was done, you know, and Mm -hmm. so being able to be there and present for that, I thought was like a huge privilege. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it felt it felt like you came away like I learned I felt like I learned things while I was watching the show and, mm-hmm. and not only about the creators of the show, but just sort of about life and, you know, and siblinghood, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I was talking to Hunter's father again and the imagery and the type of storytelling that occurred in the play were very similar to uh, the time that I lived on Treaty 8 territory, which is where Hunter's family is from. Mm. And so the like the images that they were evoking were very much the same as my lived experience had been um, up on Treaty 8 territory on a reserve. And so it was almost like I was going back to that time in my life. And there were certain things I felt like they didn't even have to be explicit about in the story for me to understand. You know, it was very much like very palatable. It was very uh, emotional. Um, and very, very raw in that in that way. Yeah, that's incredible that you had that personal experience to tie to it. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about the piece that you wrote and, and how it all went afterward? <laughs> yeah, so I took up the challenge of writing a poem in response to this play uh, just because it was time sensitive. So there was like less than 24 hours to put it together um, and get it to like a printer. And also because, I don't know, like I thought it would be exhilarating to kind of do something that I would have almost no time to complete because <laughs> yeah. uh, I like the adrenaline rush. <laughs> and what ended up happening was uh, that I ended up going through like a very emotional experience because not only did I have to 
you know, live through the play and experience the themes that occur in that play, um, some of which are grief, and which, which is quite a heavy theme. I then had to translate that into something that I could produce for other people. And so the act of responding to what I thought was incredibly emotional work was also emotional and strangely intimate for me. And so when I arrived at the venue with this completed poem, uh, I was suddenly like very, very nervous. And I'm a very experienced performer, but I've never had nerves like that, yeah. um, especially in performing in front of in front of the playwright like performing in front of hunter who put the, his child out in the world in the form of a play and then i had to dissect it and reinterpret it in a way that still made sense and was truthful to the narrative mm-hmm. and so none of it is you know none of it is is false and i really had to draw on my own experiences in the way that i saw myself through the lens of this play in order to reinterpret it Mm-hmm. Is it something that you think you would do again, or was it a little too exhilarating? <laughs> you know, uh, I barely slept uh, <laughs> that night just because I was like very stressed out. But it's kind of these are the kinds of things that I think can like really distinguish you as an artist, whether you can do stuff like this, right? Like, can you write a poem in 12 functional hours? Mm-hmm. You know, can you present a poem after that long? What's is that your best work? Like, what is your best work? So like, the more I have answers to those questions, I think the stronger of an artist I become. Yeah. Um, do you do you generally get to see a lot of theater and, and see or this kind of work even? I think just being uh, in the art scene, especially the literary arts, puts me into a lot of theater spaces. And I'm a, I'm a huge fan of the fringe and uh, like big fans of, I'm a big fan of, you know, plays that have to do with stuff like mental illness and family um, and grief. And so being able to like witness this play, but then also artistically respond was different for me, but not uncommon for my experience. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a, sp- a really special way to experience something though. Um, you know, we get to, on the podcast, we get to talk about things after we see them and we have a dialogue. We get to, you know, hash out ideas, maybe disagree sometimes, but um, it does allow us an, a certain experience of the show because you're automatically already watching it with a certain lens. So um, thank you for sharing your experience. It was really interesting to hear about. Yeah, no, it was cool. Thank you. Maybe you can come back sometime and we can talk about more theater or other things. Yes, of course. Cool. Um, So you are a performer in Edmonton. How about we just take a second to um, maybe let people know what you're up to and where they might be able to catch you next? Yeah, for sure. Uh, I perform quite a bit all all over the city. So you can find more on my website, uh, nishapatel.ca. My next kind of public performance is going to be at Dirt Buffet Cabaret on March 7th. Great. And we will link to your website in our show notes as well. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Nisha. It was great to see you. Yeah, have a good day. All right. Thanks again to Nisha Patel for that very unique take on her experience with Lake of the Strangers and her creative response that she wrote to it. Um, If there's anything that's been reinforced for me this week, Andrew, it's that the context of how you experience a show or performance really, it really makes all the difference. And I think that that's kind of, that's kind of a cool thing. (laughs) So did you like going to the opera matinee uh, dress rehearsal with like 2000 kids? Is that a good context to go see the opera in? You know, considering how we usually see opera, you know, we'll have like a glass of wine and go see a show, see it with a bunch of fr- other froofy, froofy adults. <laughs> um, it was really fun. In particular, I think with Hans and, Hansel and Gretel, because it's it's kind it's a kid's story, right? It's, it, you know, a fairy tale. So um, and just seeing how the kids really loved it sort 
sort of um, kind of reiterated, you know, the the magic of the story and the magic of the woods. And I think that 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 was that was pretty special. And you could have brought your own sandwich. I know. Next time, bring sandwiches. All right. um, Before we get into our listings, uh, here's another ad. From clearing the prairies with fire to planting elm trees along our streets, humans have been shaping the land in Edmonton for millennia, and it's been shaping us right back. Our pals on Let's Find Out are starting the new year off with a special live event called How Nature Shapes Us, and you can join in on this afternoon of short talks and the live recording of Let's Find Out at the Almanac on February 9th. For more info about Let's Find Out and all of APN's member podcasts, visit albertapodcastnetwork.com. All right, Fonda. Should we uh, take a look at what's coming up in Edmonton? Yeah. If you can read some listings with me, that would be great. I'll give it the old college try. (laughs) Uh, So until February 10th, Miss Teen uh, is a world premiere play by Michelle Rimmel running with uh, Shadow Theater uh, at the Varscona. And on February 5th and 8th, Hansel and Gretel is playing at the Edmonton Opera in the Jubilee Auditorium. Uh, on February 5th, Lend Me a Tenor starts up at the Mayfield Dinner Theater. That has a nice long run until March 31st. And the Chinook series returns to the ATB Arts Barns February 7th to 17th. It's that 10 hot days or two hot weeks or whatever that hashtag is. The Chinook series is pretty cool. Um, they have all sorts of mini little festivals, I guess, running in the larger series itself. Yeah. How many festivals do they have sort of under the umbrella of Chinook uh, now? Oh, don't quote me on it. I think that there are seven. Let's see if I can remember them. There's Black Arts Matter. The new one is called Synergia. Um, there's the Deaf Arts Festival. Sound off, Sound right? Um, and then there's Expanse. Then there's a fringe section, right? Like fringe has its own thing. Doesn't it? And, uh, I don't know. <laughs> and then Workshop West is doing Canoe. Um, and then, uh, uh, so that's six. Six or seven. Six or seven. I'm, I'm missing something. Very sorry for whichever one I'm missing. But <laughs> We'll get back to you on this one, folks. Right. Great. <laughs> um, well, thanks for listening to I Don't Get It, everyone. Uh, go see some shows. Bye. Bye. I Don't Get It is a member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or check us out on albertapodcastnetwork.com or the CKUA radio app. I Don't Get It is recorded on Treaty 6 territory in Edmonton, Alberta in the Edmonton Community Foundation's podcast studio. Our theme music is Mountain Time by Ghibli and you can find more of Ghibli's music by going to ghibli.bandcamp.com. I Don't Get It is produced by Andrew Paul, Fonda Mithrush, and Paul Blinoff. Sit here thinking about our love